Hi, I'm Clement Liu, and welcome to the third season of Just Sustainability. Those of you who know me, or who are longtime listeners of this show, are likely aware that there are a few things that tend to get me to maximally nerd up. One of those things is thinking about how institutions of higher education can be more democratic and accessible. And the other is the relationship between place, identity, and food. Given how much I like thinking about those two topics, it's not surprising that one of my favorite scholars is Emily Breyer. Emily is a poet and teaches writing at Western Carolina University. She writes, speaks, and teaches about empathetic teaching and classroom equity, as well as how food is reflective of the identities of queer Appalachian women. Here's how she introduces herself. Yeah, so I'm a writing teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm an Appalachian. I'm a queer woman. I am a pet parent. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm trying to figure it out. I <laughs> yesterday was the first day of class, and um, I have students introduce one another, and then they all have the opportunity to ask me a question. Right. And one of them asked, which was a really great question what are you doing to make the world a better place? Mm. And that was interesting because I, you know, usually it's like, what's your favorite movie or what's your favorite ice cream flavor? You know, usually it's pretty shallow stuff. Yeah. And that was a really amazing question for me to think about on the first day of my seventh year of teaching. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good question. I mean, I think I might actually reflect that question back to you, right? Like, uh, maybe that's a good way to get started uh, today, right? Like, what are you trying to do to make the world a better place? Because it's clear to me that you're doing stuff. I, I, I want to hear how you think about it, though. Yeah. So I think that answering this question now, I have a really different answer than I would have, you know, earlier in my career, earlier in my 20s. Sure. Because I think that the first thing that I'm trying to do to make the world a better place is to try to take care of myself in ways that mean I can show up for other people sure. in ways that are authentic and kind and loving and um, in alignment with my values. And so right. I think that it can sound kind of selfish to say, you know, I'm, I'm making the world a better place by exercising and eating fruit and sleeping eight hours a night, but it makes it to where when I'm in other places or spaces with my family and with my students and with my colleagues, mm -hmm. I'm able to be there more fully and feel like I'm being I'm giving people my whole self, uh, whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. so that's the first way. Um, and then also seeing spaces in which I can advocate for and make space for queer people. Sure. So I'm teaching in a learning community that's focused on gender and sexuality this semester. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're reading queer literature and, um, you know, writing about gender and sexuality in ways that I think are going to be really generative and exploratory and healing. And I've done community writing with trans and queer folks in poetry, um, which was, again, very healing and um, exploratory for me, but also, I think, for the folks who are in the group. And then my my day-to-day -day pedagogy, I think, also does good in the world because my goal is to do less harm mm. in the educational system in which we find ourselves. So I know that I can't radically change 
higher education in America uh, overnight. But if my class can be a space of respect and learning and and less stress and less carceral sort of bureaucracy for my students, I think that that's doing good in the world, in my, my little corner of the world. Listening to Emily introduce herself and talk about how she tries to do good in the world, let me to ask her about how she teaches and how she works to have her classes be spaces that emphasize wellness. I particularly appreciated her thoughts about treating students as complete persons and trusting students, the positive impact of trust, and how she tries to demonstrate trust. Here's that conversation. I kind of want to ask you about that, right? So, like, um, right, it's interesting where you, you sort of started by thinking about wellness and health. I actually think, right, like, that is something that is underappreciated. You said, like, it sounds a little selfish, but I, I think that's the problem, right? That we tend to think of, like, taking care of ourselves and being well as selfish when, well, if I think about it, when I think about, like, the ways folks cause harm to each other, often it starts from a place of just not being well. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are, are jackasses because they are unhappy. Right. right. It tends to be like kind of happy, healthy people tend to be kind of nice to be around, right? They're not the ones that are just are making life difficult for others. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess, you know, starting with that sort of ramble, uh, hearing you talk about like your classroom and like, you know, how you think about one of the ways that you do good in the world is through teaching. Like, how do you think about that? Right. Like, how do you think about like wellness in your class and like kind of challenging the ways that pedagogy has historically been understood to right, have a class that engenders wellness, right? That, that is a place that is uh, a good place for students. Yeah. I think that, you know, I started teaching, after graduate school, um, mm-hmm. immediately after graduate school in a full-time position. And I, for the first few years that I taught, I was just reinscribing what I had experienced and also trying to manage a really unsustainable workload. And so mm-hmm. what that looked like was a lot of sort of red tape language on my syllabus or you're really strict sort of guidelines for things because I was attempting to manage, you know, 150 students in composition a semester. Right. And that's unsustainable um, for a lot of reasons. But as I started reading more in composition pedagogy, mm-hmm. as I moved into a position of a more sustainable workload, and as I gained confidence and you know, contentment as a teacher and Mm -hmm. felt that much more than I felt insecurity or anxiety. I started realizing that my students could and would engage with the class in ways that are exploratory and generative and joyful Mm -hmm. if they were given the space to acknowledge that class is just one small part of their life. So I feel like if you trust students to take care of themselves in the best way that they know how, mm-hmm. and if you create a space where, you know, I, I see that you're struggling or I don't see that you're struggling, but I trust that, you know, you have responsibilities and, um, you have things in your life that are going on that are going to impact how much time or attention you can give to this class. Mm -hmm. And I trust that you want to improve your writing. I trust that you want to be successful in college and you will engage with that as much as you can this semester on top of everything else. Mm -hmm. 
I found that students react really positively to that in that I'm trusting them to be people Mm -hmm. together and not to be good students, quote unquote, who are, um, you know, always able to do everything perfectly on time, um, who are always able to, you know, come to class every class or or whatever it is. And so Mm -hmm. part of creating that culture is asking optional on the first day of class, what might interfere with your learning this semester? Okay. And I get a lot of answers to that that are really illuminating. And I get answers to that where students know that I'm actually interested in that and Mm -hmm. that I'm understanding that that exists. Um, And also being open with my own life. So I go to therapy every week. Mm -hmm. I have anxiety. I have family obligations. I have pets who I care a lot about who depend on me. I have, you know, vet appointments and you know, things around the house I need to do and being open with the fact that some weeks I'm not at the top of my game. Mm -hmm. And I will acknowledge to a class like, hey, I haven't been sleeping great this week and I'm feeling sort of down today. Mm -hmm. So if I seem a little muted, it's not y'all, it's it's me. Right. It seems like that allows students to see that, you know, we're not being teachers and students in this room who are you know, only teachers and students, we're being people together and our, our goals don't change, but the way that we can reach those goals can change. All of that resonates with me, right? Right. I mean, I, I do think, right, like often when we're thinking about like higher education or just education more generally, there really is an objectification of people, right? Like you become a role, right? You're mm-hmm. either right an instructor in the, the front room and you're infallible and you, you have to show like your authority and you have to show your expertise or you're a student and you're there to like, right, like push everything aside from the rest of the world and to be like 100% like a student at, at that time. And I, yeah, and I, I think that does interfere with like, I mean, I think that interferes with learning because, right, like we relate best to one another as full people. And so when Mm -hmm. we're trying to be these roles, right, like I think we alienate ourselves from ourselves and that makes it harder to like have like kind of interesting discourse and like to to be as successful learning as possible. Um, And you talked a little bit about like, right, like how you might, I don't know, encourage people to be fully themselves by patterning that yourself and by just letting them know that you are open to them being themselves. But like, how else do you, right? Like, it's one thing to say, like, how do you sort of structurally change your, your classes or how you structurally change your classes over the years to, you know, kind of more to show rather than to tell that like, you know, students can come as be like their full selves. Yeah. I think it's a lot of letting go. Okay. Um, And a lot of, taking care of my own feelings okay. outside of the classroom. And so I talk about this some um, in the article I wrote for Spectra on pandemic pedagogy, right. where I think a lot of the issues with teaching and higher education that I see stems from instructors not acknowledging their feelings or not taking care of their feelings about teaching. Mm-hmm. And so Let's say, you know, a student is consistently five minutes late to my class, Right. every class. They come in five minutes late. We've already gotten started. We're already in peer review or group work. And I have to explain to the student what we're doing or, you know, they disrupt my my lecture or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. 
I think early in my career, I would get angry at that student. I would be annoyed at that student. I would create a narrative about that student's life that centers me and thinking that they don't respect my class or they don't respect me or they don't care enough. And, you know, I might send them a, a very formal email about the inappropriateness of their tardiness or, or whatever it is and hold on to those feelings. And now instead of that, I think it's more one curiosity and two, realizing that it really doesn't have anything to do with me, probably. And so reaching out to that student and saying, hey, what's going on that you're late to class? And then sure. that student might, you know, talk about any number of things. Or they could say, like, I didn't think you would notice. Sorry, like, I'll I'll try to get there sooner or whatever it is. You know, it's not. Um, sure. It's not, it doesn't have to be this grand narrative. It might just be like, oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't really notice that that would be disruptive. So thinking about especially absences and tardies in a different way, students can excuse their absences in my class just by reaching out and letting me know, hey, I'm not going to be there Friday or Mm -hmm. I won't be there Monday because I have to go back home and take care of something for my family or, Mm -hmm. you know, sorry, I missed today. Like my boss had me stay till 2 a.m. because the closer, you know, called out. And, or, you know, I need to take a day today is enough to excuse an absence in my class because I found that students were, um, felt sort of pressured, I think, to perform enough. Right. I don't know, like to perform a narrative that they thought that I would react to otherwise. Right. And students are really smart. They've been in school for, you know, 13 to 15 years by the time they get to me and they know what teachers want to hear. And to me, that's part of the smoke and mirrors of our classroom is that like, I don't, I don't want students to have to create a narrative that is good enough Mm -hmm. for me to react to because I'm a certain person, you know, I'm cis, I'm white. I am currently middle-class. I didn't grow up middle-class, but I am now. And I'm not disabled and I don't have learning disabilities. And so my framework for understanding the world is different than my students. So if a student Mm -hmm. is telling me, you know, if they're trying to get me to understand why they're not able to come to class or why they weren't able to complete an assignment, I don't want to be the arbiter of what is worth it or not worth it. Right. And on Twitter, I call these the secret knocks. Um, where a lot of professors who I really respect and who I think are trying to do the right thing will have an extremely strict policy on their syllabus Mm -hmm. about late work, for instance. Right. But they will say like, well, I always will talk to a student and work with them. And so that is not an actual policy. It's hoping that your students know the secret knock Mm -hmm. to access your grace or access your empathy. And that's so dangerous to me because it means that I'm the one who is gatekeeping that. Right. Well, and it privileges folks who understand, uh, right. The sort of the systems and structures of higher education. Right. So like, absolutely. Right. Like if you, if you have a parent who also completed college or who went to college and completed college, right. You're going to have that person like, Oh yeah, you should just, 
call your professor or like email your professor and ask about that because it says it in the the syllabus, but I bet you that they'll make an exception if you ask. Right. Versus like someone who might not actually have that piece of advice, right? And never think to ask because, well, that's the rule. So like, you know, uh, I, I fucked up. So I just got to, I guess I have to suffer that consequence. Right. Uh, I mean, and it also strikes me, right? Like, you know, when you don't take that attitude, like the attitude that you described and instead like take the attitude that like, I think we're often... I don't know, thinking back to my education, I was exposed to as a, as a, a student interacting with instructors where, you know, the, 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 the instructors like enforce rules. It, it sets up a weird adversarial sort of relationship, right? And I'm not sure that's actually helpful in any ways for people to yeah. learn. Well, and it's also for like, what is that training any of us for? Right. I hear sometimes you know, I'll see takes that are saying like, well, in the real world, this won't fly. (laughs) And I've never, I've never had a boss, even when I was, you know, outside of academia, you know, I've worked restaurant, I've worked in hospitality. I've never had a boss who was as inflexible as some of my professors were. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I think the inflexibility that professors see in the real world is because they've always been in higher ed, which is a strangely, I mean, historically, a strangely inflexible institution. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's I, I think, right. Like, it's just sort of repeating the sort of the systems of oppression and domination that, right, like they were exposed to. And I think a lot of it is, I think a lot of it comes down to that sort of, insecurity like it's it's an extremely vulnerable place and i mm-hmm. i started teaching as a grad student when i was 23 i got my first full-time teaching job when i was 24 mm-hmm. at a community college and so many of my students were around my age or older than me right and i i think i look fairly young um and so a lot of what i i look back now and i see that i was terrified of my students because I would have teaching nightmares of them just rioting, like them just not, you know, like them getting on top of tables and, you know, blocking me out of the room and, and all of these things. And that's just such a, I don't think we need Freud to figure out what I was worried about. Um, But I think that especially with attacks on higher education from politicians, I think, the discourse of whether or not we should even have college or have the liberal arts. Mm -hmm. A lot of us come from this very defensive place of what I do matters and people should respect my work. Right. And, but we're writing that upon 18 year olds who are, a lot of them are away from home for the first time are, you know, figuring out how to eat vegetables on their own timetable Mm -hmm. who are getting four hours of sleep a night. And, you know, we're, we're displaying that authority toward our students instead of toward administration, politicians who control the funding for higher education, right. a larger discourse. Our students get the brunt, I think, of that anxiety and that worry and fear about our livelihoods, especially those of us who are um, teaching faculty primarily who might not have the same research schedule or um, recognition from the university to begin with. Right. It's like, well, if, if what I do matters, then you would take it seriously. Like 19 year old student. And it's like, you know, they're doing their best. I think that all students are doing their best at any given point. Yeah. 
That's <laughs> just a weird juice of thought. When you were talking about like students riding, I'm just like, you know, I think if my students ride it now, I would feel like I did a good job because like <laughs> they're standing up for something they believe in. And ultimately, if I can like, right, like if I can empower students to stand up for the things they believe in, I've succeeded as an uh, as an educator, I think. Oh, yeah. If they locked me out of the room now, I would be like, yes, more power to the people. I love this. Yeah. Right. Go burn down some institutions. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I think that's true, right? Like, I, I, I do. I think talking to my colleagues and thinking back to my own experience. Uh, yeah. I do think, right, like, there is, right, it's easy to become afraid of your students or to be anxious about your students or just to, right, like, yeah. And, so, and I think it's not necessarily sort of, being afraid of your students, but sometimes being afraid for your students, right? Uh, I, I do think some, right? I, I believe people when they say, like, they think students need to learn, like, you know, various sorts of, like, compliance to be successful in the world. I mean, because I think they've had to learn those sorts of compliance to be successful in the world. But yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think that actually in the long run serves students very well. I, I think I think a student who's more willing to ride is actually going to probably have a more positive impact on the world than a student who's just like bows down and like, you know, does a thing yeah. to them. And I think we can we can sort of unveil that quote unquote hidden curriculum in a way that is an accomplice to our students right. and their success and what they want to do. So, you know, if I'm helping first semester students figure out how to email a professor, right. then to me, that's helping them, you know, get through the institution and get their degree. Right. And I can do that without saying like, if you don't email me this way, I won't respond to you. Right. Like, I think that we can help students figure out what they, what they want and what they need in dealing with, um, you know, cover letters and other professors and right. grad school applications and whatever else without reinscribing those punitive measures. Right. You can explain the conventions without enforcing them. Exactly. Chatting with Emily about how she works to relate to her students in ways that recognize them as whole persons, centers trust, and is mindful about instructor emotions, let me ask her a tangential question about how she evaluates students in her courses. Her response was that she uses labor-based contract grading. Um, we've talked a lot about like sort of classroom management and the hidden curriculum, but I wanted to ask you about something, I guess, somewhat related that has come up several times with other guests, but I'm curious what you think about it, specifically about assessing students, right? So like grading or ungrading or like how you sort of approach that. Like, um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are about like how you, uh, assess students in your classes. Yeah. So starting in Fall 2021, I moved to labor-based contract grading and away from a points model um, of grading. And so essentially, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of literature about various forms of ungrading and labor-based contract grading, and it's not new by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I started it last year. And essentially, if students complete the work and meet the minimum requirements for that work, Mm -hmm. they earn credit for their assignment. So it's just a complete or incomplete in my grade book. And they get feedback, written feedback from me on everything that they write. So the only difference is that there's not, you know, a number associated with it. Okay. And at the end of the semester, 
if they've done X amount of work, they get Y grade. Okay. Um, and so I bake in some misses that they can have and still earn an A in the class. So it's not that you have to do a hundred percent to get an A. Right. Um, but for me, it has been a really excellent change. Um, and uh, Dr. Jonathan Bradshaw, who's the head of the composition department where I work, mm-hmm. has also made this change in the last year. Um, and I've had various discussions with colleagues and friends who have um, done some form of this uh, in the past couple of years. And overwhelmingly, I have found that it has improved my relationship with students. It has improved the emotional tenor of the classroom. Okay. And it has freed me up to feel like I'm teaching and helping students learn rather than assessing and judging. Well, and I find that, uh, I guess when I assign letter grades, students tend to just look at the letter grade instead of looking at the comments when it's really the comments that's useful. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I tell students, like, I pedagogically, in a way that faces students, I find this a really useful framework that they can understand, which is there are two reasons out of a dozen reasons to do this. And one is that I I mostly teach first and second year students. So this mm-hmm. semester I'm teaching over 90% of my students are first years. And in three weeks, they will write their first paper in my class. Right. And what that's essentially assessing is what they came in knowing, right? I don't think that I can change someone's writing process in three weeks. No. And so if they fail that first paper or if they get a D or a C mm-hmm. in a traditional grading scheme, that means, well, you probably won't be able to get an A in this class. And what I'm assessing is not their engagement in the course, not their willingness to learn. What I'm assessing is their previous knowledge, their previous experience, and largely the where they grew up, their socioeconomic status, the college attainment of their family members. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's, wildly inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that some folks say, well, I always give them all A's on the first paper. And I'm like, that's just pushing the problem down the road. Um, And so in my experience, students who would fail or get a lower grade on the first paper would disappear because they're already thinking, okay, well, I'm going to have to retake this class anyway. I'm not going to spend my limited time and energy focusing on this course, I'll focus on my other classes, fail this class, and then I'll retake it later. Yeah. So that's one, you know, one type of, of situation with grading. And the other side is uh, when I taught at the community college, about uh, a large percentage of our students were early college students who were selected in seventh grade to be on an early college track all through high school. Mm-hmm. And essentially, they took all honors classes. And then starting their junior year, they took college classes. So they graduate high school with an associate's degree. Okay. And, you know, I'm not going to comment on the appropriateness of selecting seventh graders uh, for Hmm. um, an honor when they are 18. But a lot of those students would be, um, you know, what we might call high achieving. Often, um, they would be very prepared. And so if they got a 98 on the first paper, I found that they would rarely engage with the class after that in a way that they didn't feel that they needed to make strides 
in improving their writing or research processes. Right. Because at the end of the day, they could sort of game the rubric and just not deal with correcting MLA format Mm -hmm. or not deal with, um, you know, updating how they structured paragraphs or whatever it was. Because at the end of the day, they're going to get somewhere between an 85 and a 95 on all their papers. And then if you add in all the process assignments and whatever, they knew that they were going to get an A in the class. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like seeing both of those sorts of ends of the spectrum of the students who are coming into my class, I was thinking who was served by me grading, mm-hmm. like me putting points at the top of a paper. And it was very few students. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Like it, people respond to the incentives that are presented to them. Right. So like if, if, you know, they're doing things for grades, they're just going to do the things they need to, to get a certain grade. Right. Like the, it, Right. Decenters the content and the skills. Um, yeah. But if you focus instead on the work itself and was, yeah. So like, right. For example, uh, I think the, the best sort of educational experience I had as a student was once one of my professors said, like, all right, everybody in this class, you have an A already. Like, fuck the grade. We're going to just talk about like, you know, philosophy and then you, we're going to focus on the philosophy. Don't worry about the grade. And right. Like that having that experience very kind of early on uh, allowed me to like, wait, think about like what it was I was doing in the class and then just sort of focus on the like content and like focus on like developing like argumentative skills and writing skills rather than thinking like, I'm trying to get like an A so I can like go to grad school. Right. Um, Yeah. And if we want students and something that really helped me sort of untangle my feelings about grading is that I also teach creative writing in addition mm -hmm. to composition and creative writing classrooms, all of the creative writing classrooms I've ever attended as a student in undergraduate and graduate school have been ungraded. Right. But we don't call it that. But a professor never put a 78 on the top of my poem. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's never like this is a B minus poem about like your grandma dying. Like right. I've never no creative writing professor I've ever met actually grades. Well, that'd be so weird too, right? (laughs) Yeah. And it's, they say that they do, but it's pretty much all completion and participation grades because we know that students are coming in with different modes of communication. And so seeing that I was already ungrading creative writing, just not calling it that, I was like, oh, well, if I want students to take risks and participate in composition, then I can just run it like I have been running a creative writing class and engage with all of this composition pedagogy, which Mm -hmm. again goes back 50, 60, 70 years. And that's not a radical concept. It's reimagining something. Right. Well, yeah, it's actually thinking about what we were in fact doing and then thinking and being kind of more intentional. Right. At this point, the topic of conversation shifted substantially. So this is a good place to end this episode. To review, Emily and I talked about how she approaches teaching. She emphasizes trusting her students, endeavoring to treat them as complete persons, and being mindful of her emotions and how those emotions might have an adverse impact on the experience of her students. We also discussed how Emily evaluates students using labor-based contract grading. In the next episode of Just Sustainability, we'll continue with the second half of the conversation I had with Emily Breyer, and we'll learn about her scholarship and poetry about Appalachia. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. 
In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.